Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. On today's episode, I'm excited to welcome a filmmaker whose work uses clever storytelling to reveal truths about the gay community in hilarious and occasionally horrifying ways. His celebrated short, Gay Zombie, explored the chic world of dating the undead, and his feature film, The Love Patient, reveals the shocking lengths some will go to to gain the attention of another. An acclaimed writer, director, producer, please welcome Michael Simon. Very happy to be here. I'm so excited to have you here. We've been talking back and forth for a long time, and now the day has come. Yeah, well, I'm glad we connected before Halloween and got that whole gay zombie thing sorted out. Yes. Uh, so before we get into the show, what's fun about that is you and I connected on social media a little bit before Halloween, and you had uh, asked me if I had seen Gay Zombie, which I admittedly had not yet, and you sent a copy to me, and I had got it right before I had a big gathering on Halloween, so I actually screened it for a group of people. It was the it was the piece that started our whole evening <laughs> off, and since that evening, I was like, I have to have him on Dead for Filth because I want to talk about this. So That's great. That's great. Uh, yeah, I'd been following you and watching your you know blogs and everything with the queer horror, and I thought to myself, God, you know... Gay zombie sort of part of this world. I thought it would be really nice if it, you know I exposed you to it and you know saw what you, you know, see what you thought of it. And all of that. N- no, absolutely, and I was thrilled to uh, connect with you. And then the more uh, digging I did and having conversations with you, it, it's not just part of this world. There was a, a, a real significant impact that Gay Zombie had on the festival circuit at the time that it came out, which I would like to get into as we talk uh, a bit more about it. Um, yeah, yeah, I. Um I don't know how much you want to just dive into, but it was, yeah. Well, why don't we uh, dive into the show uh, in the traditional way? And okay. I'll start the show with the yeah. same first question I ask every guest, and it is simply this. Why horror? And you can interpret that however you want. <laughs> why do you like horror? Why do you think people are drawn to it? But why horror? For me, I chose horror because I wanted to make a splash. Okay. I wanted to do something that was going to get noticed, something that was going to be really entertaining. My whole background with horror and my history with horror wasn't necessarily why I made Gay Zombie. Right. But Gay Zombie was my fourth project and the third that I'd written and directed. And I'd been doing the festival thing and it was a lot of fun. But I was I sort of made the decision that if I'm going to be in this world, you know, as selfish as it sounds, I just I wanted it to be noticed. I wanted it to make a splash. I wanted it to, you know, as again, has done with the towns to win the awards and to right. like be the darling of the, the festivals. And everybody loved horror and everybody was loving zombies. And I was screenwriting at the time and wanted to make a short film that felt more like a feature. Mm-hmm. So I kind of fell into this comedy horror romance situation and just wanted to make something um, just very entertaining. My, my personal background with horror is, you know, I, was, I used to be terrified you know, from like way back in the day, like you're you're a bit young, but you remember like the night gallery and the Twilight Zone oh, and all yeah. that stuff. Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't remember how old I was, 9, 10, 11 years old. We would watch Night Gallery and there was an episode called The Doll. And that was one of the most frightening episodes ever <laughs> to this day ever aired on TV. And I remember it's hard to believe, but I like slept under the covers for something like two or three years. After, you know, seen anything like a doll in a box and its eyes open, it's alive and it's <laughs> chomping on people and all that kind of stuff. So that was terrifying. And then when I was in high school is when movies like The Omen and The Exorcist and all that stuff was coming out. And those movies were terrifying. I didn't even want to go see The Omen because I had heard about, you know, the scene where the guy gets his head decapitated by a pane of glass or something. And when I finally came around to seeing it years later, I kind of felt a little silly for waiting so long to see it. But that movie holds up. Oh, I think it has uh, a lot of impact. I, the, what I love about The Omen is it's really well curated in an atmospheric way. Uh, it's one of my favorite horror movies. There's just something about uh, the pedigree with which it's made. Richard Donner, Gregory Peck, this mm-hmm. this, um, this whole notion of can a child really be evil? Well, in this case, yes. But uh, it, it's both nurture and nature, I suppose. Yeah. And having a child like that, Jeff, that you're not used to having a child terrifying you. So that also is, a, I thought, a really well-done element to that film. Yeah, that boy was scary. Yeah. Um, I, I think Night of the Living Dead was my first exposure to probably the zombie genre. And that, again, was a very horrifying Another film. movie that has a, a terrifying child. Yes. Yeah, because it's, uh, it's Kyra Schoen, uh, Karen Cooper. 
Cooper is the name of the character. She has that trowel in the basement. Oh, God, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I do want to say for listeners who uh, were kind of curious about the night gallery, uh, of course, culturally in the zeitgeist, we all know Twilight Zone. So for those of you who aren't aware of Night Gallery, Night Gallery is a show that Rod Serling did afterwards, which is also an anthologized horror series that utilizes paintings that are spooky. And he looks at a painting at this night gallery and then tells the story of the painting. And you go into the the world of, uh, of the painting and it's usually something oft supernatural or horrifying. Uh, Steven Spielberg directed the first episode with Joan Crawford. She, I did not know that. Yeah, she plays a blind person oh. who's looking for someone else's eyes. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's a personal favorite of mine, and I think Twilight Zone fans, especially with the renewed interest with Jordan Peele's series, would do well to go to go and find Night Gallery uh, as well. So that's really cool. It's never been brought up in the history of Dead for Filth. Oh, great! So I uh, was excited to like, oh, this is a teachable moment. <laughs> uh, so tell me a little bit uh, about then your origins in the world of film. Like, obviously, you're watching things like Night Gallery and Twilight Zone and The Omen and The Exorcist. But you also said you kind of came to horror a, a little bit later in terms of a creator. Were you always interested in making uh, movies when you were growing up? Did you like have a moment where you were like, this is something I want to do? I, I was always an actor. So I was always doing the acting thing and trying to do the acting thing. And I always um, felt like I had good ideas for writing films, but I never felt like I could be a writer. I never felt like I had the skills to be a writer as it learned turned out later because I never tried. Right. I never knew that if you could just sit, if you just sit down and try it, because I always thought I didn't, no one ever taught me how to write dialogue. How do you write dialogue? Dialogue is just people talking. Right. Um, so basically, you know, after in my 20s, I was, you know, doing the whole acting thing, trying to do the acting thing. And in my 30s, I decided I just wanted to have a good time. <laughs> I didn't want to spend my time headshots and trying to be an actor and you know spending all this money that people do on all these things with all these people that get all this money from you from when you're you know trying to have a career so I spent my 30s just having a good time and then I decided I was going to go back to acting when I turned 40 so turned 40 there was a class right by where I lived uh, uh, Arthur Mendoza was this great acting teacher at Actors Circle Theater joined the class he, um, a lot of it was Adler. His, Adler's the technique they teach there. And, mm-hmm. and if you know anything about Adler, it's much more about uh, the imagination. So as the student, you're actually creating through your imagination a lot of what you're doing, and you're actually writing a lot of what you're doing. And so it just turned out to be the perfect storm for me because it really brought out my juices with the writing. And right. I just really took to it and really started enjoying it. And somewhere a year, two years into class, a couple of kids in the class approached me to write us a short film. For the three of us, you know, for reels and maybe festivals and that right. sort of thing. And I was like, well, all right, I'll give this a try. So I sat down at the computer, wrote a nine-minute script, and then nine months later it was playing at the Arclight. Oh, my gosh. In one of the shorts festivals or something. Right. And, you know, going to the Arclight and, you know, seeing my name up there, you know, written by, produced by, and I, I was actually acted in that. Um, it was sort of, a, it was, you know, it was a lucky first at bat because it gave me that confidence that if I sit at the computer and just look at a blank screen and write something, that it right. could get produced, it could get made, and it could get seen. And, um, and that's what started the whole ball rolling. And that, uh, The Neighborly Thing is the name of that. It was directed by a girl named uh, Samantha Light. And um, that's sort of like a horror, suspense, thriller. I played the creepy neighbor. Um, and that was also my first stab at writing for budget. You know, like when you're in a screenwriting class, they always say to you, never write for budget. You know, right. just write what you want. And I was like, well, screw that. If I'm going to be able to make this, I have to film this at my place. Sure. And I happen to live in a very um, interesting um, carriage house, front entrance, back entrance, many rooms, backyard, front yard, porch, patio, all these areas, garages and stuff. Well, this so is I, a great location. This yeah. is a great and yeah. very flexible location. Right. So I specifically wrote it for the location and it just worked out just swimmingly well and these other two kids I made it with were you know great um so that was a lot of fun and then that's when I just sort of started the ball rolling of you know making shorts and just I mean the learning curve just learning everything you know and everything it requires because I didn't go to film school or anything like that so I learned as I went and I hired great DPs always with the amazing sound people lighting people you know learning Right from the bat, you know, your movie's not going to get sold if you have bad lighting. And bad sound. 
and bad sound. Yeah. I'm a stickler about both of those oh. coming from. I always uh, say that I came from the Roger Corman school of filmmaking <laughs> in the way that, like, uh, you uh, you said that you didn't go to film school, but you learned by making movies. Yeah. And, and there is this famous quote that Quentin Tarantino said that I didn't go to film school, I went to films. And there is something to be said about that trial by fire in the way that I've worked with artists and actors and creators and directors and producers who have done both. And I think that still sometimes even uh, seasoned filmmakers will step on set and something comes up that has never come up before. Mm -hmm. Every movie in some way is like the first movie because you learn something or you are presented with a challenge that like a hundred films in, you're like, well, that's never come up before, and now I have to figure it out. Yeah. And uh, so it, it is interesting the things that you learn when you just put yourself to it. Right? Absolutely. I mean, I ran my sets, and it wasn't until maybe my second or third movie that I realized I was being the first AD. I didn't right. even know enough to know that what I was doing you know, I was line producing the films before I knew what line producing was. I was being first AD before I knew what that was. It all just happened so organically out of necessity. Because it was all just me, right. you know, I was just doing everything. And like I said, hiring these great people, like my first DP I did, I think, two or three films with, he also was an editor. Mm -hmm. So I was like, oh, Jesus, well, this is a dream. Right. He's shooting my movies, he's got his own equipment, and he's editing my movies, and he's, you know, there's so many details, and you have to do the credits, and there's just, to wrap out at a full project, so you're holding a DVD in your hand, there's just so much. And when you have people that can do all these different skills, and that fall into your lap, and I've always been lucky with really talented people, you know, and as you know, you know, you don't necessarily pay these people or pay these people a lot. I, you know, once I got more into my features and stuff, then right. I was able to pay people, you know, actually, you know, pay them, you know, for what they were doing. But um, I was always so lucky with all that kind of thing. Well, and it's something like that when you're all learning together and making labors of love together, if you find your team and you find your people as you keep progressing, then yes, the money comes and you can make make the bigger projects, but you all kind of go through that fire together and I think that that's that's really the great luck of indie filmmaking. Yeah, and yeah, absolutely. And then the the trust, you know, be able right. to trust these people so that's something you don't have to worry about. Exactly. Now, one thing that I wanted to talk to you about uh, is, uh, you know, you talk about being an actor and just kind of discovering this talent for writing when it was put in front of you. I, I did have a guest a couple weeks ago, a brief aside, who said that in a way to them, writing is like acting on the page. Do you think that's true? Not necessarily, because there's just so many technical elements to right. writing. And I got really into screenwriting and, you know, taking screenwriting courses and learning the whole the first, second, third act, all the structure and all the right. points that go along with screenwriting. So for me, the acting process is a little bit more of a freedom flow mm -hmm. and an emotional flow, an emotional arc where, um, you know, for better or for worse, I got obsessed with screenwriting structure. <laughs> you know, so, you know, one of the biggest crit of my own self-criticisms of my scripts and, of course, from what I heard from others is sometimes it's a little tinge of emotion or heart missing from my work because I'm so obsessed with, you know, making everything the way it's supposed to be. Right. You have to hit those beats. You have to hit those yep. beats. And, you know, and the funny thing about those beats is, you know, people say, well, can't you just skip it? Or get... when, you, when you really understand screenwriting, when you go see a movie, every single movie yeah. has these same exact elements. Um, I don't have it anymore, but on my, um, uh, I think on my DVD player, I had a clock. So when I was watching movies, I was watching the clock. And lo and behold, eight to nine minutes, this, you know, this exact thing happens. It's 17 minutes. Right. You know, the first act's about to end and you're about to launch into the second act. And, you know, depending on the length of the film, of course. And, you know, the, the low point and just all these things, all these elements of screenwriting. No, it's so true. And I spend a lot of time... Uh interacting with young screenwriting students and I, I will go and talk to them about things and one of the things that like frequently comes up is they'll be like well I don't necessarily want to do this with my movie or like do I have to and I'm like well to start yes like coming from the world of TV especially where like a TV movie is not a three-act structure but a nine-act structure you have to hit all of those beats uh, because even though you may not think they're all crucial when you're watching at home they are because the audience likes that familiarity but also the truth is 
you have to know the rules to break the rules. Any great movie exactly. that's broken the rules is doing it knowingly. You can't just willy nilly go in because then it's chaos. Well, like having the lead character be the antagonist and you know that sort of thing. Right. Um, yeah, absolutely. I um, I think it was Training Day with Denzel Washington where he was antagonist. Like like gay zombie. You know, it's it's a little bit different because the lead character is the zombie. Right. Which was something that I had never seen before. I was very struck by that because uh, you're right. A lot of zombie movies come from the perspective, of course, of the living. Uh, <laughs> and uh, the idea that um, the zombie in, well, not some way, shape or form, usually just generally is a bad thing. It's a representative of this otherness, whether that otherness is plague, whether that otherness is mob mentality or whatever. Right. Uh, but then you structured uh, Gay Zombie in this way that he's a romantic lead, which has to be social commentary whether you you intended Int- to or not. Yeah, there was a lot of layers and things that people took on this movie and wrote about this movie that I definitely did not intend. <laughs> you know, to me, it was just, it was a story about a sexually confused zombie okay. who wasn't able to come out of the closet in his waking life. But as a zombie, he had just had nothing to lose and had all this, you know, um, confidence and fell in with the right crowd of guys that were wanted to show him a good time. And then he, you know, lived his life as best as he could coming out of the closet and being gay, you know, as a zombie, thus the name, gay zombie. It wasn't about AIDS. It wasn't about, you know, the gay community vilifying anyone who wasn't, you know, fit their mold or anything like that. I'd never even considered any of that. And it was actually a pretty big surprise to me to actually read articles about the movie that were none to do with my intention of the film. But as an artist and creator to see that people took this greater meaning from it is that not cool in some way yeah i guess i could i could turn it around and 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 think that is cool right. but you know if that was my intention then you know not welcoming someone into a jacuzzi because they're ill is certainly not something i would ever want to write or sure, sure. have the intention to write you know uh but this kind of was uh, a discussion that I wanted to have, have with you, not necessarily about gay zombie, but sort of uh, your oeuvre in general. I, you know, I was thinking about uh, The Love Patient and gay zombie, and uh, one of your earlier films is one of you, Eddie, which is all about uh, this idea of uh, this West Hollywood type of gay as opposed to other kinds of gays living in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And uh, there is an interesting through line in something that I like about what you do is you highlight uh, dynamics of gay community and gay relationships in ways that are relevant to gay people. Because a lot of times, you know, you go to places uh, that are LGBTQ film festivals, uh, which have been very good to me, and I know they've screened a lot of your work as well, but there is sometimes that criticism that you go and see, like, a movie at Outfest, and it's a coming-out story. And those are the big movies that, like, play the big nights or whatever. Or, like, they're kind of accessible movies for members that aren't part of our community. Not that we don't need coming out stories. Of course we do. But there's also a whole bunch of us that we're out. So, like, what are, what's the next story? And what I really like about your work is, whether intentional or not, you have found this place where you are utilizing these stories to highlight things that go on in our community that I think maybe straight people aren't even thinking about. Right, the judgment within the community, yeah. like you said, about being different in different factions of the gay community. Yeah, right. I mean, that's definitely intentional right now here's a little bit of trivia is the love patient was actually a completely straight script oh interesting yeah i wrote it as a completely straight script i think it was one of the first scripts i wrote when i was you know studying screenwriting and you know getting my first script done and then my executive producer maria montgomery who i made a gay zombie with i was always sort of needling her you know come on let's make a feature let's make a feature (laughs) and i think at the time it was called um the spot um, you know, cancer, geez. And, uh, and uh, you know, we were having dinner one night or something, and I think I presented a ridiculous, like, a $10,000 budget to her, which, of course, you know, there was not realistic at all, but right. just trying to, like, I don't know, quote-unquote trick her. And um, she was like, well, if we're going to make a movie, we'll make the spot. And I was like, well, that's my, you know, stri- straight, you know, f- script. And I thought to myself, well, God, just make the ingenue role a guy. And I literally went through the script and 
didn't really change anything else. Right. So that it doesn't really read the love patient doesn't really read so much as a gay movie, except for the fact that the two lead characters are both men. Right. You know, I think there's another character in there, the Ted character. I made him bisexual or something, and that created another little gay story through line in there. But for all intents and purposes, you know, it's a romantic comedy. Right. It's a family, not a family film, but about a family. Right. And, you know, the whole point that a lot of people missed with The Love Patient, that the whole point of the movie is why do we wait until someone is sick or dying to come to their side? Right. That's really what it all boils down to. And, you know, everybody's focused on the fact that this guy did this horrible thing by pretending he had cancer, which was, of course, a horrible, horrible thing to do. (laughs) Yes. And then as the lead character, you know, not necessarily likable. um, So we sort of did everything um, we could to make him more likable. And, And Benjamin Lutz, who played the role, you know, just did such a great job of making, you know, him as sympathetic as possible and, you know, all of that. But in the course of the film, what does happen? You know, he does this awful lie and pretends, but what happens? It brings the whole entire family together. Right. The family has all this, you know, communication and all, you know, healing old wounds and all this growth. And everybody comes together and has such a great time and everything's so wonderful. There's just the big problem, especially with screenwriting structure. You're going to have that moment when, Obviously, if it's a movie about a big lie, there's going to be the part in the movie where everybody finds out right, the he's reveal. lying. Yeah. The reveal, and then you have to face the repercussions. Uh, you know what I think is interesting, and I was I was thinking about it while you were talking about the uh, going through the script and realizing that the lead could be changed from this ingenue to this guy without really changing anything else. There's something fascinating about that to me, about it really shows the universal nature of falling in love in the way that it it really is not about gender. It's about people. And the fact that you didn't have to change anything. Yeah. You wrote these characters that made sense regardless of yeah. whether they were played and, by men or women. And you know what I just thought of, which I've never, ever thought of before, is how differently the film would have read if it was made of it as a straight film. Right. If the character would have still come across as such a cat. I don't even know. I'm not even thinking this through as I'm saying it, but I mean, I would imagine it must be at least close, but right. I've never even thought about it that way. No, it's just it's just an interesting kind of, uh, you know, what if the idea, too, that uh, it really at the end of the day, the story is is about this connection between these people. And like you said, what draws us to finally reveal how we feel or to go to somebody, it really is uh, regardless of, of, you know, male, female, or, you know, whatever your gender identity is, yeah. and more about how we connect with one another. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the the response at the festivals was sort of like people welcomed it right? because it wasn't about coming out. It wasn't about being gay. It was just a story. And I think maybe some other people wanted it to be more about some sort of a gay theme. Right. Um, but there was certainly a lot of welcoming to see a gay movie that wasn't about being gay. Yeah, I think that sometimes that's that is the most powerful way to make a gay movie is just showing gay people living their lives. It's not necessarily discuss. I think I think that's the one thing that I, after a certain point with queer cinema, because we had that run of movies that came out from the mid '90s on when there was more of a, a boom of of indie gay features being made. Uh, it was great to see them. And I remember going to Blockbuster and renting all of those. And you know, like I love this movie and I love this and seeing this. And then there's a point where it's like, well. I don't sit around and talk about being gay all day, though. Like, there is this point where, like, I'm gay and living my life pretty gayly, but like, not every conversation is about that. So I think there is something refreshing to just show a gay relationship as it functions in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, I do want to ask you, uh, because we have been talking about incorporating these themes in work, uh, and, you know, I'm gay zombie obviously is... Uh, about a gay person, and uh, so is the love patient I mentioned, is one of you, Eddie, and uh, gay identity there. How important has it been to you, and was that always a mission statement of yours when you started writing and making work of your own to uh, make content in the LGBTQ space? Not necessarily, but I, I warmed into it, especially with something like Is One of You Eddie? Right. Where it's these like, you know, attitude queens having this brunch and then they have this neighbor who's kind of this like awkward bear guy and that they're, you know, you know, 
sort of mean to him. And then, you know, they realize that, you know, he is, in fact, you know, the cool dude and, you know, has this whole all this other stuff going on that they don't even know about. And they learn to really appreciate him. Right. But um, I, you know, I really fell into making my movies much more about the LGBT world. I Again, this is probably going to sound awful, but to get them made. Right. I knew there was an audience. You know, I learned early on when I was screenwriting and starting to make my films, if I made them LGBT, that I could do the festival thing and I could get them seen and I can get them sold and I can get them made and I can develop an audience. Right. And so that's one of the primary reasons. You know, I wasn't necessarily going out to, you know, make these big statements. Right. Um, I just, if I was going to, you know, get the work done, if I was going to pay for a lot of it myself and if I was going to have my executive producer, Maria Montgomery, pay for a lot of it too i didn't just want it on my shelf i wanted it to be seen right and it seemed like the straight world of festivals and the big indie you know the sundance and all that stuff it was you know beyond my reach and so i thought it'd be fun to like really be able to get my work done and seen and sold and i i think that yes there is a business element to that of course but also i think that what you're saying and what i'm hearing uh that is actually in a way a very crucial narrative to a gay film going audience. I mean, I, I just said there uh, during that era of, of, you know, Get Real and Edge of 17 and eating out in those movies and just going out and seeking them as as an audience member because they there weren't a lot of movies for gay content. People. Yeah, people, they the, the audience needed content. Right. And so, yes, there is a business aspect, I think, to making this and knowing that the audience is there. But there's also an awareness as someone who is probably watching these movies and, and getting something from these movies yourself, realizing, yes, the audience is here because they're hungry for this content. And if you're making content for those people, then to me, that's what it's all about. Uh, so, um I don't think that's awful. I, okay. I, I, th- I think you definitely like. I, I think you you were making something for people who who needed it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it it was such a whole a different world that I put myself into with, you know, being a producer of these things and putting casts together and putting crews together. And, right. And you know, for anyone who's a writer like yourself or you know filmmakers out there trying to make films, you know, the satisfaction of being on set. And looking around and seeing these characters and everyone's, you know, calling their name, you know, Paul, you need it on set. Brad, you need it on set. Well, <laughs> they're calling Paul and they're calling Brad because I made those names up. Right. I decided to call them Paul and Brad. And, you know, there is a certain satisfaction to knowing this is all going on and um, and to be able to, you know, get get the job done for sure. Right. And I'm not one of those filmmakers who I can't do a three, four five year movie. I can't like, you know, these they have enough money for production, but then they don't have the money for post. post or they don't yeah. realize that post is going to cost equally as much, if not more. And then when you're done with all of that, there's color correction. And then, right. you know, there's just it just goes on and on and on and on and on. And um, I'm not criticizing anyone, you know, with the funds, but I don't want to get it started unless I know that I can finish it. The one thing that I think is really interesting from an indie filmmaker perspective that I see a lot of uh, first-time filmmakers always kind of forget is, yes, post, of course. But then they never leave money to actually plan any sort of uh, release or publicity. Or and That's it's sort of like, tough. That's really good. That's getting tough, though, you know? Yeah. Because to have the mo- just the money to get through post, but then also have the money for marketing and, you know, all of that stuff. It's like it's like a process that, you know, you sort of learn as you go. And then once this chunk of it's done, then you move on to the next chunk of it and hopefully have a distributor who, you know, buys it or does some sort of distribution deal where a lot of that's done for you. Right. It's all a learning curve. Um, and another element during this whole thing was Logo. Oh, yeah. And here, because that was all going on when I was making my movies. So everyone's selling the movie to Logo and here and all that. So that also made it a lot of fun for filmmakers. And when I made Gay Zombie, I had a friend named Dave Mace who was working at Logo at the time. And I was able to get Gay Zombie to him. So he was able to get it a little bit on the fast track and get it seen. So Gay Zombie was actually sold to Logo and MTV Networks and all that stuff before it was even um, had a premiere. Wow, that's amazing. Because especially for a short film, which we know that short films sometimes have dubious lives after festival circuits. Now in streaming, it's a little different. Uh, But then a horror short and a gay horror short, 
that you found a home before it even premiered. Yeah. That's significant. Yeah, and I'll, I'll one-up you on that, is when I made Gay Zombie, it was when shorts were getting shorter and shorter and shorter. Right. And people were even, I mean, I saw some amazing shorts that were like two minutes long and four minutes long. Right. But you're talking like the generally the four to six minutes and, you know, you're really starting to push it when it's, you know, 10 to 12 minutes. That's when it's getting really long. And um, I presented the script to my team who I was working with at the time. And it was the, the script was 20 pages, which, right. of course, is 20 minutes. And they were like, Michael, this is way too long. Long story short, cut scene. I was like, we're making this film. Right. You know, I've got the funding. I'm paying for it myself. Maria Montgomery's paying for it with me. And um, and I was really, I was I was a nerd for the screenwriting the thing at the time. So even though it was 20 pages, it was still structured like a feature. Right. Like it was very clear and crisp <laughs> on how that was all working. And um, so, yeah, so the um, the programmers... At first, we're like, didn't know what, we're, we're a little thrown off that it was, 20 minutes was long right. for a shorts program at the time. And festival programmers can be very picky. Yeah. And um, not to toot my own horn, but the basic rundown is it played 100 festivals in 26 countries. It got uh, translated into eight different languages. Right. It was on the circuit, I think, for seven years. That's amazing. Which... I mean, for, you know, in fifth, sixth, seventh year, I was still getting calls. I was still getting calls to have this. And I've heard people having gay zombie parties around here and there. I'd get little notifications. And then my big coup de gras, as I told you, was that I got a call from Harvard. And they wanted to use gay zombie as an educational tool in one of their classes. And, of course, I was like, so this is Harvard Community College. You know, they're like, no. No. <laughs> Harvard. Harvard. For, <laughs> I was like, for real? And yeah, and so they, it was like a theological class or something. And they watched it, and I Skyped in, and I had to you know, do my little Q&A with all the little, you know, smarty, smart, sharpie Harvard students. And then after that was done, I got another call from Harvard saying that now it had to be inducted into the um, permanent addition to the library. So Gay Zombie is part of the permanent edition of the Harvard Library. The Andover Theological Harvard Library, yeah. That's amazing. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. So let's let's kind of dial it all the way back to the beginning of the process of this, though. So you write this story about a gay zombie, a gay zombie <laughs> in the lead, no less. Uh, could you have ever imagined the life that it was going to have You know, while you were making it? Or was this just like, I want to make something fun and I have this idea and we'll see? Yeah, no, I thought it was going to do well. I just never thought it was going to carry on the way it did. Right. Um, I was really proud of the title. Right. Just because somewhere along the line, I wanted to make a movie where the entire movie was in the title. Right. It's called Gay Zombie. What's the movie about? A gay zombie. Right. You know, I just wanted the log line to be in the title for just one project. Um, I figured, I mean, for me, the big kahuna was getting into Outfest. Right. You know, that's sort of like when you're doing these LGBT movies, that's what, that's that golden goose you want to get to. Yeah. So it was a nice moment getting accepted into that. And for any filmmakers out there who don't know this, you know, once you get into a, a festival like Gay Zombie, all the other festivals want your movie and want to play your movie and you get on these lists and you get called and all this kind of thing. Right. Um, so that was very satisfying and a lot of fun. I didn't think, I mean, I, I was surprised when it, I mean, I think we went to Wales with it. I went to London with it. I did quite a bit of traveling with Gay Zombie, so it got quite international. Um, I'm sure you've experienced this as well, you've, where you've Googled one of your projects and you see like the Japanese version of a poster. You're like, I didn't make that poster. I don't know where that poster came from. The picture isn't even anything as you've ever taken. It's their own screenshot they created. And then when you see something that you've created go universal like that, it's, it's just something sort of very exciting. Plus, it's a little out of your hands. No, it is out of your hands. And like part of you could uh, be real obsessive about like trying to contain it. Which you can't, especially now in the digital era. But I, uh, I had a very similar circumstance with a short film that I wrote and directed called He Drinks, which is a gay horror short that played uh, at Outfest as well. Uh, but I happened to get a Google alert um, where it was included in a trailer in this film festival in Cambridge. 
and they had screened it. And I'm like, where'd they get a copy of it? Like, I'm thrilled it's screened, but I, didn't, right. I had no idea. Yeah, yeah. So it was sort of like, but it, it was kind of funny just to, to know that it had this, yeah. uh, you know, it's exactly what you said. You see artwork or something or you discover it's playing yeah. in a country that you uh, had no idea they even knew it existed. So. And it was also satisfying to, I didn't create the gay zombie genre, right. but it, to be part of like a, this niche of a niche of a sub niche of something, right. you know, that crosses, you know, all the checks, all these boxes was really fun. Do you have, and this is this is just a very Dead for Filth specific question, since you reference it, do you have any other uh, gay zombie favorites out there that like are, you know, your brethren in this world? Um, I, I liked Otto Up with Dead People. Yes, I'm a big Bruce LeBruce fan, and I think that film is really um, sad, honestly. Yeah, There's something I, thought sad it was, it. I thought it was really, really nice. Yeah. Um, his follow-up to that, I can't comment on. Got it, It got was it. like sort of half porno half zombie half it was just sort of uh la zombie yeah that was yeah i was you know i actually um i got believe it or not i got a lot of calls from festivals that they sort of took la zombie and then when someone when they actually realized what it was they couldn't screen it right and i got last minute calls for me to send them gay zombie interesting yeah for sure to to fill that spot well, I mean, and uh, I say I, I I do love a button pusher, and I think I know I I know that he knew exactly what he was up to when he made that. So yeah, it was definitely the transgression yeah. of it all. Um, another really interesting uh, moment with Gay Zombie for me was um, so I made it in two thousand and Shaun of the Dead with two thousand four. I made it in two thousand and seven, somewhere around I don't know twelve or thirteen. I'm driving down Van Nuys Boulevard towards Ventura Boulevard, and there's this bus stop that has this one sheet, which is these you know big posters they put in the um, bus stops, and it was a zombie that looked. It's a movie poster with a zombie that looked a little bit similar to my zombie. He was wearing like a you know hoodie and like looking very similar. And it said Warm Bodies, which was the name of the movie, of course. Oh, yeah. And it had the same, what do you call it, tagline? What is the little thing that you put on, you know, movie posters? Oh, yeah, a tagline. A tagline. So mine was um, Love Means Never Having to Say You're Dead, which, of <laughs> course, the youngins aren't going to know. That's from Love, Love Story, Story. Yeah. Ali McGraw and um, Ryan O'Neill. And so Love Means Never Having to Say You're Dead. And I'm driving down the road, and I look up and says, Love never it means never having to say you're dead. I was like, oh, my God, it's my zombie, and it's my tagline. As it turned <laughs> out, their tagline had said, uh, it was actually a little bit better than mine because it was love means never having to say you're undead. Uh, so they changed it a little bit and maybe a little bit better than mine. But um, but at the end of the day, they probably never saw my movie or probably never saw my artwork and they right. probably came up with it on their own but I just thought it was like oh wow this is like getting really close to home yeah this is getting really close to home and then when the movie came out there was an interview with the director and he was talking all about that he was uncomfortable about you know having the zombie be the lead role and have it be a romantic thing and I'm like well this is all my stuff you know yeah. and he's like oh, but I'm working on another feature right now it's a cancer comedy I'm like well I'm working on a cancer <laughs> comedy damn it this guy's got my career and I'm you know sitting there you know peddling burgers so um that was kind of a really interesting watershed moment how surreal though it was to come up with the exact same thing, what I came up with it first. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so I, I do think it. we talked about the life that Gay Zombie had. It played in all of these places, seven years, Harvard, all of this stuff. Also, one of the things that I think is really interesting, uh, also because Paul Etheridge has been on the show before, is that there was a German release of Paul's movie Hellbent that they included Gay Zombie as a special feature on. Yeah. And was I, there any connection between the two other than they're both gay horror or no? Oh, I think just that they were both gay horror. Right. I think that... Um, um, I had a, a several um, sort of European distribution uh, deals with Gay Zombie, right? And the German one, I don't, I don't think they ever released it on its own. It was during the whole Hellbent thing, so it, I think it's in the special features. I actually brought it with me, and I don't see it doesn't say Gay Zombie anywhere on the um, artwork on the box, right? But when you go inside there, and it goes to special features, Gay Zombie is one of the special features, and of course, it's you know translated into. German. It's always interesting. Well, the German subtitles right. anyway. But how cool and how bizarre too. Like just to like throw your film into someone else's Yeah, film. that was like really weird. Yeah. That was really weird. But again, what do you do with these 
movies, you know, right. at, especially a 20 minute short, unless right. it's going to go on a compilation. And here's an interesting piece of trivia for you. With all the success of Gay Zombie, I never got a U.S. deal. Never. It was never distributed in the U.S. It's like a regular you know, movie, movie, or through TLA or through, you know, any of these things. How interesting. Well, I feel like now, though, in the advent of streaming, there might be a home for it in that place. Have you have you had any of those conversations? Maybe we can do it together, Michael. Okay. I mean, you know, it can be definitely, I should be, I should have it on Amazon streaming yeah. for sure. I've just been a little bit busy the last five or 10 years, <laughs> but, um, but it should be. And then my feature, I'm going to own it again in 2011, I think. Which is another little tidbit for the filmmakers out there. We, um, when I signed with TLA, they offered us a 15-year contract, and our lawyer got it down to 10 years. And at right. the time, it just seemed so insignificant. So it's 10 years instead of 15 years. Well, right. now that it's two years away, I'm going to own it again. You're excited to have it back. I'm excited to have it back, and then I could maybe parlay that in with Gay Zombie or do a, like a whole compilation right. thing or something like that. A, a Michael Simon retrospective. Yeah. See? And there's also The Analyst's Goodbye, which was the first film that I um, made and wrote and directed. Yeah, tell me about that. I, I was uh, I have not seen that. Yeah, you know, I'll send you a copy. It was, um, God, that was a monster. I mean, I just spent way too much money. And it was, you know, it was, it was definitely a, a hard, hard first project, you know. And that was 12 minutes. And it's a story. It's just two actors in it. It's about a... Um, a, a stockbroker who's having a horrible day who walks into a bar and basically walks into the bar to kill himself with mm -hmm. um, just doing shots of Jack Daniels. Oh, and there's this very sort of you know lusty, interesting uh, bartenderess, if you will, and they go on this sort of back and forth path through the movie as he's trying to kill himself with drinking shots of Jack, and he and she eventually leads him back into her lair. She sort of lived in the bar, and she had had this whole thing set up back there where it was her intention to kill herself that night. Oh. So, I mean, it's sort of a very dark, you know, um, atmospheric tale. But, um, and it's actually, it's a, it's a good film. It's a good film. I mean, it was, I mean, when I was shooting it, I was thought, oh, this thing's never going to get made. I'm not going to have enough coverage, usable coverage, because it was just a, you know, horrible shoot. But um, it was... Um, a couple years ago, there's a uh, uh, Shorts HD is a, a network mm -hmm. that's part of, I think, um, what is it, the AT&T thing, the U-verse. Oh, yeah, yeah. And they were looking for shorts, and someone said, oh, you should you know, send in your um... – so I sent an analyst goodbye, and they bought it, and they featured it, and I was like – and then I was like five for five, like I made five projects and I sold five projects. So there was a certain satisfaction to that. Isn't it cool to the lives that the things uh, you make have? Like I always think about this as an artist and this is something that when people get discouraged, uh, I always tell them you don't know what a, a life this is going to have because a film is a forever piece yeah, of art. Yeah. And so uh, sometimes you make a movie and uh, then it comes out and maybe it does well or it doesn't do anything at all or it's not well received. But then sometimes it's just a matter of waiting. And I think about... Uh, I think Showgirls is a great example. And my li my <laughs> listeners will probably be like, uh, he's talking about this again. But it is a good case. I mean, even though that was a major studio release, uh, anybody who was paying attention in 1995 when that movie came out knows that it was critically reviled and a commercial failure. And now we're still talking about it 20, you know, four years it's later. It's a camp masterpiece. Yeah. And it's getting a documentary about it. It's got this whole new resurgence. I've seen, like, interviews with fans who love it because they love how empowered Elizabeth Berkeley is. And imagine if you're her after that movie came out and how ill-treated she was. Uh, but now people are celebrating it. That's and true. It's this, this idea that art has lives as, as rich and strange as ours, I suppose. And I yeah. think that's cool to know that your first short, like, yeah. yeah, all those years later. Yeah, and also you make a really good point is once something's done, it's, um, people hate saying this, but it's a product, it's content. Yeah. And you have something that, is, like you said, is going to live on. Right. And the advice to the filmmakers out there is... Keep aware of that and make sure your music is original music. Yes. And make sure, like you said, with the lighting and the sound. And even with things like the credits, the beginning, at the end, like just do everything you possibly can to make it a sellable, usable 
product because once it's done and once it's in the can and pressed, it's done. That's it. You don't get a second chance and it can live its own, go on and have its own life. It's true. I think the music is a really good point. Speaking of Outfest, I was uh, at Outfest last year and I saw a really wonderful short film. I will not uh, name it for what I'm about <laughs> to say, though. Uh, but one of the, the misfires of it, it was really well written. It was really well directed. All of the parts were right. And I thought it was really exciting. And all of the music they used in it was like the Beatles and, you know, Janet Jackson and Wham. And I'm like, I know you didn't pay for this because you made a short film. And if you could afford the Beatles and Janet Jackson and Wham, you should have made a feature. Now, here's a really interesting story is when I made as one of you, Eddie, I had to um, rush a uh, what do you call it? A sample DVD together for a distributor who was interested in buying it. And I, you know, didn't have original music yet. And someone had suggested a band called Dimitri of Paris. Okay. Which is very French, loungy, boppy, really, really fun music. And it just happened to suit the movie perfectly. Mm -hmm. So I laid it in throughout the whole entire movie as if they had done the soundtrack. And I let that my distributor know that, you know, I didn't own. It was a temp track. Yes, a temp track. And um, the distributor was like, I, we can't even picture the movie without this music. Like the music and the feel of the way you put it all together is just so perfect. Lesson to filmmakers out there. I tracked down Dimitri of Paris. I actually found Dimitri's actual email, told him about the project, told him what I was doing, and he gave me the music. Oh. See, that's a, that's a nice story. That's a nice yeah. story. I mean, his manager wasn't very happy about it. And I had to do Managers these contracts. Are, yeah. and, you know, <laughs> once we sell a certain amount, which, of course, we're never going to sell. But um, but that a, was a, like a miracle. But you don't know until you ask. Obviously not Wham! And, right. you know, the Beatles and this kind of thing. Right. But that Although, was... Uh, you know, who knows what Ran- Andrew Ridgely is doing with the the right what rights to Wham these true. days, or so. who owns that stuff? I That's don't true. even know who owns Wham. Yeah, because in the in the eighties and nineties, people were buying song catalogs left and right. So uh, yeah, but no lesson learned. If you're going to work uh, on an indie film and indie artists, maybe who knows? Uh, it's, it's exposure yeah. all around. Yeah, and another good lesson to learn is that everybody's hungry. Everybody wants to be part of a movie and they want to be on the set. And if someone's learning sound, you know, go to the film schools, go to these places where these these kids are learning all these tools. And, and, you know, people, I mean, I've always said that I was just shocked at what people did for me for free. I made five projects. It's a lot of crew. That's a lot of post. Right. And, you know, people want their music heard. The people want their sound design heard. People want to learn this. They want to learn that. And if you can sort of corral that properly and treat people right and give them the respect and the freedom, um, I just, people did so much for me. That's why in my in my day-to-day life as I am now, mm-hmm. there's not a lot I can do for people, but anytime I could do something for someone, even not, nothing to do with movies, just right. in just life, if I can do it, I'll do it. Because people have done so much for me. It's just putting it back into the universe. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but we're talking about this body of work that you've done and all the people you've worked with and the things that you have done. And, and uh, I will be asking about your life now. But bef- uh, before we get into that, because I know you have an interesting uh, new adventure that you're on. <laughs> um, is there another movie in your future? Well, you know, when you make your own movies and pay for your own movies or have your friends pay for your movies with you. Um, you reach the point where you want to sell a movie, like sell a script. Right. And I really sort of fancied myself a screenwriter. And I really did embrace the horror genre. Mm-hmm. And it was when, you know, Blumhouse was making all these films and James Wan and everything like that. And so I started writing horror scripts. And so I do have a couple of scripts that I've been peddling. And that I would just, uh, it would just be my life's joy. I have a script called a Crematorium that I wrote and a script before that called Canisters. And um, there, I actually uh, pretty recently on the festival circuit as well with those. I won a couple of festivals last year and they, they, they always seem to place and everything. There's always this problem with it or that problem with it. But everyone's going to sure. have problems with that. And it's actually a little frustrating for me, you know, when I see these horror films out there. And, you know, I love Jason Blum, Jason Blum and the Blumhouse stuff. I love all that stuff. But I could definitely see my script, especially Crematorium, be in his his factory right. and be made. It's just a matter of getting to the right hands and, you know, the right draft. And then, you you know, you only have one chance. Is it this draft or that draft and all that kind of stuff. But um, so I am actively seeking a distributor for Crematorium. I do definitely want to get that 
get that going. And I love it. I love the script and I love the moments in it. And it's a female lead. So this whole thing's female driven. And it's like a, it's almost like a Brie Larson kind of role of just this, you know, powerful medium woman who gets, you know, trapped at this crematorium for a weekend and all these ghosts and all this stuff. But, and another thing with the boy from Omen, there's a character in the, in crematorium very much like that boy. So it's a little, you know, the movie Birth with Nicole Kidman. Oh yeah. So it's a little bit with Birth where the lead role is this old, you know, mature woman. And then the actual lead male is a boy. Oh, interesting. So there's that's a that's a whole dynamic. There. Yeah. And he's a creepy, creepy, creepy. Actually named <laughs> Benji. Oh. Exactly the same as Benjamin Lutz. But um and I love the dynamic between the two characters and the dynamic between her and her husband, this Latin guy Rico. And um, you know, I haven't picked it back up in a while, you know, because I spent a lot of time writing it and writing the drafts. But so I'm definitely still in the mix as far as trying to be creative and trying to write and trying to keep things going. For sure. As far as actually making a movie, right. the closest thing I could possibly make is a script I have called Terror Barn. My um, executive producer's husband, Aaron Silverstein, has this property out in Ithaca. And this is this crazy you know, land and this weird like pod house. And it has this scary barn there. And so I basically, again, writing a script for environment right. that I know I can use. And it's all sorts of woods. It's just perfect for a horror movie. Oh, absolutely. Perfect for a zombie. It actually wouldn't be a zombie movie. It's actually, the story's more about, you know, all these young, eager actors who go out there wanting to make a horror film, not knowing they're making a snuff film. Oh, no. That's dark. That is dark. But that's horror. That is horror. Yeah, I mean, horror it would be frightening. Be it would be a frightening film, actually. Uh, well, you know, these are both things that I'm, I know as a film goer and horror enthusiast, I would like to see, and you never know who's listening to the show. So if you are out there and you are looking to help get some movies made, track down Michael. We've got content. Yeah. Uh, so I alluded to this a little bit outside of your life of filmmaking. You have recently, uh, it is recently, right? Embarked on a new three or four years. Yeah. Uh, well you have a, a whole, uh, other life. Uh, in the world of orchids. And could you tell me that? Because I love when I have creators on and I get to discuss uh, what they do outside of this crazy world of yeah, films. Yeah, absolutely. I um, Well, actually, some background about Mimi you may not even know is I was a full-time professional massage therapist for 25 years. Okay. So my life career when I was making my films was massage. And then I segued from massage into... Um, the plant life into the floral world, which was a completely <laughs> unexpected turn. I went to uh, the Home Depot to pick up some succulents about four years ago to make my patio all nice. And I arranged them in a certain way. And I was like, it was, you know, it's sort of like one of those moments in your life when I put those succulents in my hand, you know, and the clouds open and the angels sing and all that kind of stuff. I just really connect. I connected with succulents. I barely knew what they were. I right. never really had a green thumb. And I just became obsessed. And I learned all the species and all the varieties. And I started arranging them and putting them in pots and all this kind of thing and putting them on Facebook like, oh, look what I made. And people just started buying them. And I became a professional floral designer in like six months. It was crazy. It's like I woke up one day and I was a floral designer and doing things and construction techniques of the design that no one had ever done before and, you know, specifically just succulents. And that led to me um, purchasing this um, orchid company. And now I'm a merchant. And I spend my days with orchids and succulents 24-7. It's mostly gifting, premium gifting. A friend of mine named David Stanley had the, this company called the Orchid Wrangler mm -hmm. for 15 years. And he wanted to leave town. And I was getting deep into the floral world. And our, live, our these paths, his path and my path just came together at the exact right time. And I bought his company. What I love about this is it also shows that no matter how much you may think you've got your plan or your life figured out, something new can show up that changes the course of everything. The idea of just going to Home Depot one afternoon to pick up some plants for home and hello, new career. Crazy. It was a big pivot. It was a big pivot. I mean, when I left the massage world, I, I in a way, you know, I was really diving off the cliff. Right. Because I didn't know exactly you know, I'd never really worried and I'd worked so hard, you know, for so many years because I did it full time. Plus right. I was making my movies. So, I mean, I was really going, going, going. So when I was, you know, uh, quote unquote unemployed, I was like, you know what? I kind of I can take six months and, you know, enjoy myself for this six months and right. just, you know, not worry about things. And because I was able to take that really deep breath, 
um, I think that's what, you know, you know, opened that up for me and a little bit of an artistic background. And my father was a professor of engineering, but also became an artist later in life. He became a master potter. Mm -hmm. He discovered a, a potting wheel. You know, the way, you know, back in the day, our neighbors had this garage with this woman who was teaching pottery classes and he took to it like crazy and became incredibly prolific artist with it. And it was very similar to what I've done with the succulents and I can make the hugest thing and I can make the tiniest thing right. and I, you know, and he created his own ways of doing things and I'm doing the same. So in a way, I'm very much channeling him and his artistic gifts and talents in what I've been doing with all this floral stuff. I love that. And I, uh, you know, I have been watching on social media and you post these photos and they're beautiful. Oh, it's thank you. So cool to see. And in fact, uh, I can reveal to listeners at one point, Michael and I were talking about having him on the show back in February, but because of Valentine's Day and the amount of work that you were getting and orders for that season, you're thriving. It's so cool oh, to see. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. I just, you know, and also I relaunched the, rebuilt the website. Right. So that was another big project. There was Valentine's Day and relaunching the website and really digging digging my heels and 2019 for me was the year to really dig my heels in a project a day every day which I actually stuck to and and I'm relaxing a little bit more now that the thing is launched and of course Mother's Day is coming but yeah and thank you for being patient with me with that because I was really excited to come on the show no I th I think it's awesome to see the work that you're doing and in fact you know when this airs I encourage listeners to go and not only check out the movies but you know, if you are in an area where you can purchase an arrangement for your home, you should. <laughs> the Orchid Wrangler. Yeah. Uh, so before we head off into the night, and I get that information of where people can find you, uh, have you seen anything recently? What are you watching? What inspires you? It doesn't have to be new, but like this is a show that's all in uh, worship of cinema. So what what are you watching that you like? God, um, I have really gotten into some of these shows, these Netflix shows and these HBO shows that... Um, I mean, we're off. It can be off the subject of horror. I'm assuming, of course. Yeah. But yeah. the things I've really enjoyed recently have been Succession, and Sharp Objects, and Ozark, and I love Barry. These are the shows that I've really, really enjoyed. You know, some of it's. You know, there's this new thing that I call Mumble TV. Oh yeah, where everything's Every, every Everyone just mumbles now, <laughs> and I think it's very brave. Right. Actually, it's really, really trusting the audience. A lot of mumblecore is going on out there. People just mumble, mumble, mumble. I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but it's definitely closer to real life. Right. You know, so those are the, I'm very, I'm looking for, and I loved Big Little Lies. I thought it was really well done. I was a huge fan of Big Little Lies. <laughs> so glad to see that coming back and with Meryl Streep. Yes. I, I, I honestly didn't think that they could improve upon that first season. I'm like, what else could we ask for? And then they were like, and Meryl Streep. And I was yeah. like, okay, now you've, you've got me back. I want to know. And as far as horror and horror movies, I, you know, I just don't go to the movies that much like I used to. And, you know, some of the things that, you know, really just floored me and moved me, I just... You know, things like going to the theater back way back in the day and seeing like Poltergeist or a little bit more recently, something like The Ring. Mm -hmm. I remember I saw The Ring with my uh, in the theaters with my friend Craig and literally everyone left the theater and we were just like frozen. I mean, that movie creeped me out and Blair Witch, too, when that first came out. Creepy, creepy, creepy. Um but these days, like a lot of the Conjuring stuff, I feel like the, the first one was was really, really good, wasn't it? The first Conjuring, yeah, I like really the first scary, one yeah. yeah. And then uh, the second one um, was the one that introduced us to the Nun, which was a whole like pivot. Oh, and now there's a whole movie, The Nun. Yeah. yeah. No, they've been very well. Uh, what I think is interesting about The Conjuring is they've sort of uh, laid their claim to their own little cinematic universe. Uh, you know, Marvel laid the path where like every movie intersects, but now we've got a horror version of that. Yeah. Uh, all based on true story. Well, I mean, very fudged true stories, but uh, the the core of The Conjuring is based on two real people, Ed and Lorraine Warren, who are uh, paranormal. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and my my movie Crematorium is, um, you know, like I said, the lead character is a medium, so it definitely you know ties into that whole genre. Um, and I think it works really, really well. And, you know, actually, I think sitting here with you is going to motivate me 
to get back to that script and to give it a good reread and and to try to get some you know fires going with that because I think it's a very makeable script. Well, I'm excited. I would I would love to see you make a horror feature uh, or have you know a script of yours that is a horror feature out in the world. Um, so, uh, Michael, thank you so much for coming here today. Uh, where can people find you if they want to track down your movies or you know get an arrangement? What's what's the best place to <laughs> Um, geez. Well, the company's called the orchidwrangler.com and my email with that is michael at orchidwrangler.com. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you just send me an email, something about horror, you feel weird, write it michael at orchidwrangler.com asking a question about blood and guts, but that, that's pretty much the easiest way to find me. And, um, you know, the love patient is still streaming on Amazon. Gay zombie, you can't really, at this point, there's not a lot of ways to uh, see it. It was for sale somewhere for a while. I'd get orders here and there like once a month for a few years, and I think I finally ended it on that website. Well, listeners, this is your uh, mission. If you want to see Gay Zombie, which I highly recommend that you do, go out and uh, demand it of the world, and uh, hopefully it gets picked up so you can. Yeah, I should stream it on Amazon for sure. Michael, thank you so much for joining me today. And thank you for having me, Michael. This has been great. Uh, I'm Michael Verratti. This has been Dead for Filth. Yours always in glam and gore. Good night and good luck. Dead for Filth is a Reverie original podcast, executive produced by Aaliyah J. Daniels, LaShawn McGee, Chris Rodriguez, and Damian Pelliccione. The show is produced by Drew Phillips and sound engineered and edited by Josh Perkins. Download the Reverie app and use the code FILTH for 25% off your first three months. <laughs>